Oh boy, what a great time of worship with you this afternoon already as we sing songs of praise to God. One of the things that uh, we, we have not done historically in, in um, preparing for these worship services is tried to connect the singing with the particular passage at hand. But if I would have attempted to connect them, then this very well may have been the way in which I attempted to do so. Because what you're going to notice in the passage we look at today is that Peter calls us priests of God. And if you just recognize the song we sang, one of the key themes of Revelation 5 that was just read and that we just sang about is what God has made us. And he has made us priests to God. We'll talk about what that means in just a moment, but I I wanted to draw the connection between the worship in song and the worship in word that we're having today. Well, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we want to read verses 4 to 7 this afternoon. So it begins in verse 4, and it says, as you come to him, if I could just pause before we keep reading, remember who him is. Peter has just said, That we need to long after the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Throughout this text, Peter indicates that Jesus is the Lord. So you have tasted that Jesus is good. So as you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone. Chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we are thankful for this afternoon. I'm thankful for these people called out by your your name to be a distinct people in this community of Belleville. I'm thankful for your word and the way in which it has impacted each of our hearts and lives. I'm thankful for the way that your people in this church have expressed to me on so many occasions how you are using the word in their hearts. And what a joy it is to know that you are at work among your people. And it's for this reason that I come to you once more asking that you would be at work as we look at your word today. Remind us that this is not my word. It is your word. And so change us by it. You've told us that your word is like a hammer that can destroy the rocks. Your word is like the sword, almost a scalpel, discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your word is that which you use to change us, to mold us, to shape us, and to lead us on your path of righteousness. And so this afternoon, as we look into your word, we ask that you would do those things with your word for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
I don't know if there is a safe room somewhere in this church, if you've ever heard of a safe room, but I'm about to speak about something rather traumatic. Do you remember grade school? That's not the traumatic part. Let me go on. Do you remember elementary school and it's recess time and they say, let's play kickball. You two are the captains. Start choosing. Now, some of you say, no, no, that was great. I was the first one chosen every time. But what if you weren't the first one chosen every time? You stood there and waited, praying that for some reason they would choose you, knowing that they weren't about to choose you, and you end up being last among all the people, and at the end of that time, you're already ashamed, and you really don't get chosen. It's kind of by default that you ended up on one of the teams, right? You know, by the end of the time, they're just choosing, and they're like, well, I guess I'll take that person, and then I'll take that person, and, and in fact, there's no honor Standing in that spot as you feel it, uh, being in that source of, or that small assembly is a bit of uh, what you might experience is a little shame sometimes as, as people look at that. And part of it is a recognition that at some degree somebody says, well, you're not going to contribute a lot to this particular team. Now, we're not going to be doing any choosing of teams up here today. But I wanted to use that illustration this morning as actually a negative example. That isn't the way the church is run. That isn't the way that God chooses his saints. Instead, as you notice how I've labeled the passage this morning, it's chosen, honored, and unashamed. We are chosen, we are honored, and we will never be put to shame. That's what Peter is telling us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Now, how does he get there? Well, that's an interesting, it's an interesting way he gets there. Because he, he goes through an analogy. In essence, here's what we're going to find out Peter does. As he says, look at Jesus. And what you're going to see is what God is doing in you. What God has done in Christ He begins to do among you, his people. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves then, if it's, this is who Jesus is, and therefore this is who God is making us, the first question we have to ask is, who exactly is Jesus? That's what Peter is addressing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. He says, as you come to him, and he mentions that he is a living stone. Now that seems like a really odd description of somebody, doesn't it? A living stone? I mean, we, we are familiar with the rock, but this is a different type of a rock. This is a living stone. In what sense is Jesus a living stone, and why is that language so important? I'm going to suggest to you that the language of Jesus being a stone comes directly from the Old Testament. There are, in fact, numerous direct passages that I think any believer who had been dwelling on the Old Testament for some time would have immediately thought of when Peter said, Jesus is a stone. I think there's a second aspect, though, to why he calls him a living stone. And that is because he is one who died but rose from the dead. He has life in himself. So let's take a look at a couple of those Old Testament passages to see 
what Peter's referring to, by the way, one of the passages I won't be mentioning, but I think is probably somewhere in the background, is the passage in the book of Daniel. And do you recall when Daniel describes the nations of this world in reference to a tall statue that is being created? And then all of a sudden, a stone carved from heaven comes down and destroys the whole thing. And there's a kingdom that's built on this rock. It's the same Jesus that he's referring to. But there are three passages that Peter actually is going to quote, all three of these, in this passage. Now, it's not the section we read. It's going to be chapter, verses 7 and 8. But all three of these passages, Peter quotes. The first one comes from the Septuagint, Isaiah 8.14. Now, the reason I mentioned Septuagint, that's what LXX stands for. This is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. This is the version that Peter would have been using. How do we know that? Because he quotes from it nearly identically. And so it's quite clear that this is the version he's reading. And this is what the text tells us in Isaiah 8.14. If you trust in him, that is in this rock, he will become your holy precinct. In other words, he's going to be a shield, a guard for you if you trust in him. And you will not encounter him as a stumbling caused by a stone, nor as a fall caused by a rock. Now, we're going to talk about this next week when we look at the rest of the passage that Peter develops. But in essence, Isaiah is saying this. There is going to come a Messiah one day. And your experience of the Messiah will depend upon whether you accept him or you reject him. If you accept him, he will be like a shelter, a rock in which you find security. But if you do not believe in him, you will find him to be a stone over which you stumble catastrophically. This is the first of the stone passages. Isaiah has a second one in Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord, see, I will lay for the foundations of Zion a precious choice stone a highly valued cornerstone for its foundations. And the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. What is Isaiah telling us in Isaiah 28? He's saying, this is what God has said, that I have chosen a precious stone. It's going to be a cornerstone. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. It's highly valued. And the one who believes in him, remember that from Isaiah 8, now Isaiah 28, believes in him. The one who believes in him, he will never, ever be put to shame. Let's look at a third passage that refers to this rock, and it comes from the Psalms. Psalm 117, 22, in the middle of a psalm that doesn't seem to be referring to anything uh, in more specific All of a sudden, the psalmist says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, I think the psalmist is building on Isaiah. Isaiah has informed us that there are elements in which this rock, if you believe in him, he's going to be a security for you. If you don't, you're going to stumble over him. And now he says, this stone, the builders reject The ones who should be building this temple came upon God's choice stone 
And they said, we want nothing to do with that stone. And they went and selected something else. But their selection isn't the one that matters. God's is. And nevertheless, despite what they did, this one has become the cornerstone. Now, what's interesting to me is that these stone passages in the Old Testament are picked up numerous times in the New Testament. Now, of course, we're reading one here in 1 Peter chapter 2, but this actually isn't the only place in which this language is picked up. And so let's take a look at how it's used in the New Testament. We'll begin with Matthew 21. This is Jesus himself speaking about himself as the stone. And so Jesus says to them, to these religious leaders, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now, to understand why Jesus is saying this, you have to understand the parable he just gave. He stands before the religious leaders and he says, let me tell you a parable. There's a man who owns a field and he decides to go away on a journey and he lends his field to certain servants for a time and he goes off on his journey to return at a later time. And at some point during his journey, he sends back some of his servants to receive some fruit from the land so that he could enjoy it. But they reject the servants. So he sends more servants and they beat those servants. And so he finally decides that he will send his one and only son. And he thinks, certainly they will accept my son when I send him. And when he comes, what do they do? They, they in fact kill him and cast him out of the town. And this is what Jesus then says. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. In other words, here's, here's what God has promised. That in fact, there's going to be a new building. And in fact, the ones who should be building it are you. But you are rejecting the cornerstone. Just as the scriptures proclaim. But then there's another passage. In Acts chapter 4, here's the preaching of the apostles. And they say this before the, before the throng of people. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, Jewish Sanhedrin. You religious leaders of the Jews. You rejected Jesus, this stone. And it has now become the cornerstone. Now Peter in this same sermon says, You by wicked hands have taken this Jesus and crucified him. Nevertheless, it was according to God's will. So Acts is presenting what Jesus has just said. Jesus said, I am the stone and you're rejecting me. Acts says he was the stone and you rejected him. Romans chapter 9 then is the Apostle Paul's, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul's expression of this same theme. And if you remember, Romans 9 through 11 is Paul's lament. Paul is saddened, deeply moved. By the fact that most of his Jewish compatriots are not believing in the gospel. And he says this in Romans chapter 9. Why is it that they have rejected Jesus? He says they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written. 
Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The opposite of that then is true. Whoever doesn't believe in him will be put to shame. And, Peter, and Paul says, this is the state of my people. They have not re- believed in the stone that has been sent. And so they receive shame. There's one more passage that refers to this stone metaphor that's going to be important for our consideration as well. And I'm sorry to inundate you with all of this, but I think it provides the context in which we can understand what Peter is saying. Ephesians 2, 19 to 20. Paul is talking about the establishment of the church. He says, so since Christ has come and done what he's done, you are no longer strangers, foreigners or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. He's talking to Gentiles. You Gentiles have actually joined with these others, and you are members of the household of God, built, notice this, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So you've got the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets, and then Jesus, or and and then us being built on top of him. This is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. So if we ask the question, Stepping back again, who is Jesus? Here's Peter's answer. Jesus is the stone from the Old Testament. He's the stone we've been waiting for. He's the one God established. He's the one to whom if we put our trust in him, he will be a security. He's the one with whom if we do not, we will stumble over. But he's the one if we do, we will never be put to shame. This is Jesus, but he's not only a stone, he's a living stone. He has been raised from the dead. To the great glory of God. So he's a living stone first. There's a second thing that we can say about this Jesus. Second, Jesus was rejected by men. This is going to be really important as we compare Jesus to us in just a few moments. Because that's Peter's point. He's saying this is Jesus and this is who you are. Here's what Jesus was. He was rejected by men. And Peter's question, incipient here, just just under the surface, but it's going to appear later, is if Jesus was rejected by men, how then do we expect to be treated by men? But he was rejected by men, and the question might be asked, well, who rejected him? Interestingly, when Jesus uses this in the book of Matthew, it's the Jewish leaders who reject him, the same thing in Acts. But by the time you get to Romans 9, Paul is saying it's not merely the Jewish leaders who have rejected Jesus, but it's the Jews themselves who have rejected Jesus. Interestingly, when we come to 1 Peter chapter 2, one of the things Peter does is he broadens it even further. It's not just the Jewish leadership. It's not just the Jews. It is all of humanity who sees Jesus, the chosen cornerstone, and they reject him. And of course, Using, thinking about the illustration that we talked about at the very beginning of this. One might think that there's great shame in this. He's rejected by men. But there's a huge turn in this passage. He is indeed rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen 
and precious. There are two vantage points that we can concern ourselves with. We can concern ourselves with how man views us. We can concern ourselves with how God views us. And here's what Jesus was. Viewed by humanity, Jesus was unimpressive. He was a shameful figure. He was a man who was crucified on a cross. But from the divine perspective, from the perspective that really matters, the one that will in eternity last, Jesus is the very foundation of what God is doing in this new world. So the question is, which are we concerned with? Of course, he's the chosen and precious stone, but he's also the cornerstone. My wife and I just this summer had the opportunity to go to Israel And one of the things you'll never forget if you go to Israel, if you stand by Herod's temple, so this is the temple that was uh, erected by Herod the Great. If you stand beside Herod's temple and you look at the foundation stones, these things are so massive you can't imagine them. They're about five feet tall and about as long as one of these rows. Each stone. Now, if you ask, how did they move them? I have no clue at all. <laughs> it's, it's quite crazy to think uh, how they move these without, without big equipment and those sorts of things. But these cornerstones or these foundation stones were incredibly important. Because if you put smaller stones down there, a couple of problems would, would persist. One of which was this had, to, this had to bear the weight of the entire structure on it. But as well, one of the other things to note about cornerstones is that the entire structure is organized according to this particular stone. And so it is that in ancient times, when you wanted to build a magnificent structure, you didn't just say, hey, anybody got some extra stones? I'd like to just use some stones. Anybody, just bring them on over here and we'll use whatever you have. You never did that. What you did instead is you went in search of that one stone you could start with, the perfect stone, the stone that was of the right size, of, of, the, of the right height and width, that would lay a foundation that could carry the rest of this structure, that would guide the rest of the structure on how it ought to be done. And the text tells us that Jesus is such a stone. Indeed, it says that Jesus is the chosen and precious stone, indicating to us that he was specifically selected by God to have this particular role as, as the foundation of a new temple. But he's also the precious stone. And if you have the different translation in front of you, you may actually have a different, different rendering there. Some translations say precious Some say honorable stone or valuable stone. The point is this, that that word indicates that this stone would be worth a lot of money. So it's valuable. But the reason it's worth a lot of money is because it is precious. It is specifically cut for this purpose. And the text tells us that God the Father has chosen Jesus as the perfect stone. He is a precious stone. 
So this is who Jesus is. He is the living stone, a cornerstone upon which God is doing a new work. So if this is who Jesus is, and we're saying that, Jesus, that Peter is making an analogy between who Jesus is and who we are, then let's consider who are we. And you'll notice what Peter says. He makes this transition in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you, yourselves, you, in, in that doubling of the you yourselves, is he's saying, think about what you are then. What are you? If this is what Jesus is, what are you? And he says, you yourselves like living stones. Do you see, Jesus is the living stone, and we, in association with him, have become living stones. The one who has life in himself, as the scriptures teach us, has given life to our dead bodies that we might join him in this building program. Why does he use the picture of living stones? I think not only because it gives us the picture of, of resurrected life, but he's mixing some metaphors here. He's wanting to us to think about it in two different ways at the same time. He says, look, you are God's building. But at the same time, you're not just like some dead stone. You are active in this building. He's mixing metaphors, and we've got to keep up in order to understand what he's saying. Because you'll notice that we're not just living stones, but we are living stones being built into a temple. Being built into a temple. I think that Peter is giving to us a parallel here. And I'm going to try and develop the parallels between these. First, we are, he is a living stone... And we, then, are living stones. Now, is Jesus to be one who's supposed to build a temple? And the answer, actually, is quite clear. Do you remember what Jesus said to the religious leaders, or to, to his disciples? When they said, Jesus, look at the beauty of this temple. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? He said, well, it kind of looks nice. But tear it down. And in three days, I will rise, or it, it will be raised again. And his disciples said, now, Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. It took them 40 years to get to this point, and they're still building it. But you see what Jesus was saying. He's saying, I am a stone that's going to build a different temple. Indeed, the language there that he uses, that, that the Old Testament uses, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone. It's, un, it's unequivocal. You know exactly what it means. Zion is the hill upon which God builds his temple. And if he's laying a foundation stone, what's God doing? He's building a new temple. Do you know what Peter, or do you know what Paul tells us? That we are God's building. We are God's building. You are living stones being put into the very building of God. In fact, that leads me to the second point. Because you're, you are living stones, I think we are specially chosen hewn stones. Well, what do I mean by hewn stones? A hewn stone is a stone that's taken and carved. In the ancient world, uh, you'd 
It wasn't much different than our world. Do you generally chance upon uh, rectangular rocks? Not usually. But you kind of need rectangular types of rocks in order to build a building, don't you? And so people would come along and they would hew these stones so that they would fit within the building in which they are being made. I think Paul is telling, or Peter is telling us here that we are specially chosen because Jesus is building a temple. Paul tells us elsewhere that we are a part of this temple and this temple is being put together to house the very Spirit of God. I mentioned a moment ago that Paul uses this analogy in Ephesians chapter 2. He, he says to Gentiles, of which most of us are, maybe all of us in this room, you're no longer strangers, aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. And then he makes three layers. He says the first layer is Jesus, the cornerstone upon which God is making his building. And then God gives very gifted individuals, prophets and apostles. My argument would be, that there are no longer prophets and apostles because God has already established that second layer of the church. But he continues to build his church. He continues to make living stones and places them within his temple. And we are those living stones. Let me go back then. Notice, if Jesus is the living stone, we're the living stones. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then we are hewn or formed stones. And I think that this has something very important to say to us. If we are hewn stones carved and shaped and fashioned to be able to fit into this building, I suggest that what one of the things Peter is indicating is that you are needed for the building of the church. Every single one of us in here is needed for the building of this church. God is shaping you to fit into his church. There's a third thing then. We are holy priests. Now you might say, and this is difficult. You ask, all right, Peter, what are we? Are we stones making the temple? Or are we priests working in the temple? And Peter's answer is, <laughs> yes, Peter's answer is, yeah, exactly. So he's mixing two metaphors. So you've got to stick with me here. Notice what he does in verse number three. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. I would actually argue that that's a house for the spirit, a house for the Holy Spirit. We, are the, we, we contain the spirit within, within us as an assembly. But you'll notice we're not just being built up as a spiritual house, but being built up to be a holy priesthood. I know that you as an assembly worked through the book of Leviticus. And I know as you work through the book of Leviticus, you can't miss the function of priests. Prophets, historically, have been described this way. They represent God to man. God speaks to them and they speak to man. Priests, on the other hand, represent men to God. In the ancient days, you could not directly come to God. 
There are various spots in the temple you could go based upon various attributes. But especially if you were unholy, you could not even come close to the very temple of God where his presence was. No one could have the audacity to come into the very presence of God. Priests, on the other hand, were purified in such a way that they could come in. And there was one priest, the high priest, who once a year was cleansed. He offered sacrifices for his sins, and he would go in one time a year into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. But do you know what has totally changed with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and with the granting of his righteousness to us? Do you remember when Jesus died, what happened? Oh, that veil in the temple, it was torn in half. Why? Because we have access into the very presence of God, because we have been justified. We have, been, we have gained the very righteousness of Christ, and now I no longer need to go to a mediator. As a, as a human. There's no human mediator I go to, but I can go to Christ, the great high priest, who is the mediator, who stands at the very presence of God. Paul uses this language, and he has opened to us the door to the very presence of God. We are all individually then priests of God. Oh, friends, I lament the fact that there are so many in this world who believe that they don't have access to God. That they have to go to some man and have to ask that man to go into the presence of God for them. Oh, don't be fooled, friend. Jesus has torn open that veil and he has welcomed you into the very presence of his Father. Let us rejoice in that. We are holy priests. Of course, I think the analogy then is this, that Jesus is the high priest. And we then are priests of his. So one of the main functions of the priests in the Old Testament time period was the offering of sacrifices. And here's what Peter tells us. You then, as a priest of God, have the responsibility and opportunity to sacrifice to God. And you say, well, now wait a second. What kind of sacrifices could I offer? Well, friend, don't miss this. You are a priest of God. You have access into the very throne room of God. And you can make sacrifices directly to God. How might you do this? Well, let's just look at how the scriptures portray it. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies as the living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. What does it mean to offer your bodies as a sacrifice to God? I think sometimes we think of it as offering yourself in death, and that's possible, but that's not what Paul's talking about here because he says as a living sacrifice. He doesn't say go sacrifice your life. He says make your life the sacrifice. That means there are times where we should be doing things that are challenging and difficult for us, that, that we may not initially feel like because we are sacrificing our time and our energies for the sake of the Lord. You have been granted a body as a priest of God 
and you can offer it to God. No, friend, please do so. Our bodies can be sacrifices to God. Hebrews 13, 15 gives us another. He says, praise itself can be a sacrifice. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do you see what Hebrews is saying? Hebrews is written to people who are in suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And he says, confess his name, praise him for who he is. And when you do that, that is a sacrifice to God, holy, pleasing in his sight, a sweet smelling savor. Well, I I don't really want to go to the praise service tonight. We're just going to be, we're just going to be praying and, and singing songs to him. Oh, friend, do you not realize that that is your sacrifice, that you are a priest of God, and that this is an opportunity for you to to, to raise before the Lord that which we will do? Did we not just sing about Revelation chapter 4 and 5, what we will do in the very presence of God one day? I thoroughly enjoyed singing with you just a few moments ago. And I could see that many of you thoroughly enjoyed singing that song as we offered a sacrifice, a communal sacrifice of praise to God. But it doesn't have to be communal. It could be in the presence of your own house with nobody else there. Singing in the shower is possible. Being on your knees in the closet, nobody but you and God saying praise to God, offering that sacrifice. Oh, friend, I think we have opportunity to increase in our sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 16, if you'll notice, this is the next verse from the last one. He says, don't neglect to do what is good and to share. That is, share with those who are in need. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. Doing good is a sacrifice. And and, and in many ways, you know that, don't you? Because sometimes you don't feel like doing good. And so you've got to say, I'm not going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to do the thing that I should do. And that's the sacrifice. But sharing with others, sharing with those in need is a very sacrifice before our God. One final one. This is in Philippians 4, and it's support for our missionaries. Paul says, I received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. And what you provided is this. By the way, what has happened is Paul was in financial need. They sent Epaphroditus with money to meet Paul's need. And here's what Paul says. Your giving of that money was a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So, We've looked at seemingly vastly different things. Our bodies can be a sacrifice, our praise, our giving to those in need, our doing good, our supporting those who are in need, whether uh, on the mission field or not. I think the point is this. There are vastly more ways to offer sacrifice of obedience to God than we can think of. But God has redeemed you for this very purpose. You are a priest of God. 
And so make the sacrifices to him. Indeed, the last thing I want to say, and I think this is the last connection between the two, what Jesus is and who we are. And Peter doesn't draw this direct connection, but I think it's quite clear that it's in the text. If Jesus is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, we, though rejected by men, though looked at as backwards, though looked at as old-timers in terms of our, our ethics and morality, though looked at as hateful people, though we are rejected by men, we, if in Christ, are chosen and precious in God's sight. So here's what Peter tells us. Jesus, he's a living stone. We are living stones. Jesus is the cornerstone. We are formed stones being laid upon Jesus in order to build a spiritual house for the Spirit. He, the high priest, has made us holy priests, sanctified priests. And though he was rejected by men, in the thing that really matters... He was chosen and precious to God. And you and me, though we likewise are rejected by men, we too are in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I would want it no other way. It doesn't make rejection easier, does it? It, it, You know, as we look at that and we see that we're rejected by men, we sometimes almost feel ashamed. But here's what Peter says. Uh-uh, don't do it. Don't feel ashamed. Because those who believe in him, they will never be put to shame. On the eternal time scale, when everything is done, those who've rejected you, those who've rejected the message of Christ, those who have stumbled over the stumbling stone, they will be the ones who will be ashamed. But you will never experience shame. So what do we do with a message like this? Let me, let me give you two points of application and then we'll be done today. The first is this. Remember that you are a chosen stone precious to God. You are precious to God. He loves you. He has chosen you. He is shaping and fashioning you to fit into his church, into his people. And may I say then, that part of that shaping and fashioning means that he's given you gifts and abilities that you should be using among his people. Obviously, this church has been going through quite a trial over the last number of months as as all the transition took place. And even now, there's a lot of need in this church. Thinking about setting up and doing all the various things. And God has put you here to aid in this church. And you say exactly how. I don't know how. I really don't. I don't know how God's gifted you. But he put you here. And so ask yourself this question. How can I help? Because, the second point, you're a priest You have been sanctified by God. You have been given access into the very presence of God. And part of that 
responsibility then, part of what comes with that is the responsibility to offer him sacrifice. And it has to start with the sacrifice of our body. But let me ask you this question, and may this be the challenge for you this week. How can you, add, how can you give an additional sacrifice to Christ this week? How can you do your priestly service just a little bit more this week? Maybe it's that you seek out some need that you can fulfill. Maybe it's that you spend an extra half hour during the week at some point. Cut it up. But praising God for who he is. Maybe it's you look at your checkbook and you say, how can I meet the fiscal need of of someone overseas or someone here within this assembly? But could I encourage you to not just let the mirror of the word that tells you you are a priest of God just see and then walk away, but instead, as you look into the very mirror of God, would you allow it to change you? So this week, here's the question. How are you, as a priest of God, going to increase your sacrifice to Christ? Father, thank you that you have made us priests of God. Thank you that you are building us into this glorious temple in which your spirit dwells. Thank you that though the world may reject us, we will never experience true, ultimate shame. Oh, Father, as we look at your word, indeed the most glorious thing we can be and can have is to be known as your children, priests of God. Thank you that your son, the living stone, has made us living stones. In Jesus' name, amen.